Inventivity. What does it mean? The state of being inventive, creating or designing new things or thoughts. Hello, I'm Richard Miles. Welcome to the Inventivity Pod. Join us as we speak to inventors, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are using inventivity to change the world. They will bring us alongside their journey as they share their personal stories from start to finish, including the triumphs, the failures, and everything in between. Hi, I'm Richard Miles, and welcome to our series exploring the animal health industry. A look at what it is, who's involved, and what the future is going to look like thanks to innovators and their inventivity. And for this limited series, we're able to talk to subject matter experts who are excited to give our audience a look into the growing and impressive animal health industry and inventors who are utilizing their inventivity to help animals. Today's guest is Dr. Nancy G. She's a director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University and also the president of the International Society for Anthrozoology. She earned her PhD from the University of South Florida and has participated in dog training and dog sports since childhood. Uh, Dr. G also has a leadership role in the Dogs on Call program, which provides complementary therapy to enhance the well-being of patients, staff, and students through canine-assisted interventions. So Dr. G, Nancy, I, I have to fess up something from the very beginning and that I'm not a dog owner, but I am somewhat dog adjacent. I like them. I just don't want to own one. So, I, <laughs> but I do believe people who say that having a dog is the most wonderful thing that, that ever happened to them. So I have to apologize in advance. You know, that's quite all right. In, in fact, interacting with the dog, you can get the benefits, you know, right there. You don't necessarily have to have all the burden of ownership, you know, the cost of the food and all that other stuff. If you just interact with a dog, you can reap those benefits too. Hey, well, it's funny. My, my wife grew up very much uh, in a dog family and she always assumed that we would get a dog, which she didn't realize till later. She did have a limited window. She could have talked me into doing it um, before we started having kids. But once we started having kids, I thought the idea of having to take care and clean up after another, you know, breathing thing just was too much. So um, she said she should have told me earlier. <laughs> so Nancy, why don't we start for our audience, just kind of maybe defining one of the terms that I threw out there in your introduction. And that is, what is anthrozoology? What exactly does it mean? And, and how long has it been around as a discipline? The, the term really implies the study of all things related to human-animal interaction. So it's the impact that animals have on us, and it's the impact that we have on animals. So our impact and, and the sorts of things that we do that affect their lives, whether it's good or bad, and likewise, uh, the way animals affect us, whether good or bad. The uh, International Society for Anthrozoology, or ISAS, has been around for, I, I'm the president, I should know the answer to this, I'm going to, I think, 40 years, maybe, no, 50 years. I think we had our 50 year. Yes, it's been 50 years. That's impressive. So, so it's a, a you know, it's a relatively young field. Publications started appearing in this field around 1960 and has really just kind of blossomed from there. Wow. I, di I didn't realize that it had been around for 50 years, but you're right. It is still a relatively young discipline. So t tell us now, how do you, as a, as a sort of a researcher, how does it impact or how do you measure, I guess, the impact of the presence of animals on physical and mental health in, in humans? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. If we can look at the, the relationship of pet ownership to health and well-being outcomes. So, for instance, we can look at pet owners and we can compare them to non-pet owners and look at things like the incidence of cardiovascular disease or depression or anxiety. That's one way to do it. We can track that over time. That gives us a little bit better information than kind of those snapshot um, studies. And then we can also look at interaction studies. And this is where 
For instance, you can bring an animal into a nursing home to interact with older adults. And there you have a little bit more control in the studies because you can decide who gets the animal, how long they get the animal, what control condition they get, you know, and, and it gives us a bit more sort of uh, scientific strength in that type of study. And so the evidence there tends to be a bit stronger than pet ownership results. Although the pet ownership studies are showing some very interesting findings. Really? And is there a particular, I guess, type of uh, mental health issue or situation in which a dogs or any animal, I guess, tend to help the most? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And it's not quite as simple as you would think. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we look at things like cardiovascular disease, we've got some really strong evidence that indicates that people who own pets have a reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, particularly if you own a dog. And that's even when you factor out dog walking, because you think walking would give you that physical sure. fitness edge. So when you factor that out, still just owning the dog has a relationship to this reduction in risk of cardiovascular disease. In fact, The American Medical Association issued a statement to that effect, that pet ownership, particularly dog ownership, may have a causal role in the reduction of cardiovascular risk. That's a big deal for that kind of a causal statement to come out of that. When you look at other things like depression, it's a little bit more complicated because in some cases, pet ownership is actually associated with an increased risk of depression and in other cases, a decreased risk of depression. And it's possible, and and this is where pet ownership studies are a little bit problematic. It's possible that people self-treat for depression by acquiring a dog. So they may be really feeling down and their friends in an effort to help them say, hey, you know what, you should get a dog, that'll help you. And it's very possible that people do that. They may acquire a dog in order to help them with their depression. And so if that's the case, then we would expect a higher incidence of depression among pet owners because people who are depressed tend to get dogs. But again, that's challenging to separate that out. And that's where we come back to interaction studies. And the interaction studies give us that stronger evidence. And so if if I can just segue over to interaction studies really quickly, when we take a dog in to visit older adults in a nursing home, for instance, we do see pretty good evidence of reductions in depression following those visits. So there is some indication that that does work. The question that we're still working on in the field is, well, how long does that last? You know, is it just short term or does it last for a longer period of time? So we're looking at that now. Right. There was a beautiful column written about a couple of years ago in the Washington Post by an author named Mike Gerson, who I happen to know, who passed away last year. He wrote, you know, why I will never live without a dog again. He didn't get a dog until relatively late in life. But the last couple of years of his life, he had a dog and he wrote beautifully about what it meant to have a dog, what it meant to him. Um, he also did suffer from depression. So I, I think, you know, he's he's mostly was known for his political commentary. You know, he was an official in the Bush White House. He did a lot of things, but I'd be willing to bet that particular column yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. was seen by and read by, uh, you know, millions of people because it was just, it spoke very eloquently and movingly about what it meant to have a dog, particularly for someone who suffers from depression. You know, and that kind of writing is so incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of thing that has spurred us on to do research on older adults and pet ownership. In fact, Erica Friedman and I have been using the uh, Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging, which is the longest running study of healthy human aging in the world. 
And we were able to get some pet ownership questions added into that. And then we got pet ownership history. So now we can look over a 10-year period. We can look at the impact of pet ownership on older adults. And we recently published some papers on this. One study showed that older adults who have pets, they have less deterioration in cognition. So people who don't have a pet, their cognition is deteriorating faster as they age. We found the same thing with physical function. So those two things alone are pretty important. We just prepared a paper on psychological adaptation, similar kind of findings where psychological adaptation deteriorates as you age, you become more prone to kind of mental illness and such, and it deteriorates more rapidly for non-pet owners. So there's really some good evidence that indicates that older adults you know, having a pen is really good for them. And, and in society, we really need to find ways to support pet ownership amongst older adults because they do tend to, oh, I've got to move into a nursing home and I can't take my pet with me, you know? And so we need to help help them with those kinds of issues. Right. Have you looked at the effects of, um, you know, I always notice I, I go running most mornings and I always see people out walking their dogs, right? And so it seems like when two dog walkers meet unless their dogs are you know hostile to each other there's there's sort of this instant bond or at least a strike of a conversation about their dogs and so on um, and then of course you have dog parks and so on is there any evidence to suggest that an additional effect is that you are more likely on a daily basis to meet and interact with other people because you're out walking your dog yeah what you're talking about is social capital right? And pet owners build social capital faster. So if you move into a new neighborhood, pet owners are likely to meet other pet owners. And, you know, hey, I'm going out of town this weekend. Would you mind coming over and watching my cat or feeding my cat? Or, you know, can you let my dog out? I need to go to the dentist. And you, you begin exchanging favors and you develop these friendships based on your pet. And it often starts, just as you said, doing a dog walk in the neighborhood and running into another another person with a dog. And before you know it, you're walking the same route and you're chit-chatting, you're striking up friendships. And ab absolutely, yes, this is one of the things that, that we've seen. Um, there's some nice work done by some researchers down in Australia on that very topic. So uh, my wife and I have been cat owners our, our whole life. And we recently had to, I wouldn't say give up is the right word. I think the cat divorced us. He would run all over the neighborhood. We'd have to go out and find him every night. We ended up getting a GPS tracker for him. He was a very friendly cat. And almost every day I would get a call from somebody reading his number on his tag saying, hey, we've got your cat or we saw your cat. And we'd have to go literally through the alleys every night looking for his little GPS. And we, we really got to know, or actually people got to know our cat and then through our cat know us. But we finally, he, he glommed onto somebody else's household and never came back to us. And so we we eventually just transfer the, the pet records. But in some ways I miss having to go out and look for him every night because it, you know, it really did get us out in the neighborhood. So yeah, absolutely. And you know, cats are in that way. They can't, they do tend to get adopted around the neighborhood. Yeah. And you know, where people are feeding them or have toys or you know, whatever draws the cat in. And cats will range far and wide, you yeah. know, in their, in their travels. So that's not uncommon. Before we move on to an, another question, I just want to ask in terms of the studies that show this uh, connection between improvements and so on, 
is there, and I know this is probably a, a controversial question, but is there a species or dog breed that seems to be better? And, and keep in mind, I literally have no dog in this fight. So you can say whatever you want, <laughs> whatever, ever breed, and it won't offend me. But uh, does, does the data show uh, or just is a dog a dog? You know, um, what's great about all the different breeds is that different breeds can really fit our lifestyles. So, for instance, somebody who really likes to run, they might want to get a Border Collie who wants to go and run with them. You know, the very active breed, they need somebody with a really active lifestyle and they're going to really mesh. You know, you wouldn't want to get a more sedentary breed like a Basset Hound. A Basset Hound is going to struggle to go on a jog with you, for instance. And so some of that is matching, you know, really doing your research on the breed characteristics to see what fits your lifestyle. But assuming you find a breed that fits your lifestyle, there's lots of variety within breeds. And so there's a ton of variation. So you'll see that within a given breed, some dogs are more affiliative than others. They really want to go and visit strangers. And some are very much attached to their owner and aren't really necessarily interested in visiting with other people. And so there's a lot of individual differences within breeds. Nancy, one of the things that uh, you're doing is you're president of the International Society for Anthrozoology. So I was wondering, sort of, what are the different viewpoints or attitudes in other countries towards pets? Uh, I spent some time in my career in Fairmount in Europe and also in the Middle East and in Germany, for instance, it was and still is perfectly fine to bring in your dog in particular into a restaurant and, you know, have it even sit next to you and, and so on. Whereas in the Middle East, particularly in Arab countries, dogs are not at all welcome anywhere. Uh, so what are some of the differences in, in how people just view pets in general and then specifically dogs. You're absolutely right. We see a, a wide variety of perspectives. In some countries, they eat dog. Uh, so, it, you know, they treat dogs very differently because it's a food source. In other countries, particularly countries that are have a high Muslim presence, dogs are considered unclean. And so dogs are not treated the same way in terms of being a part of, our, of their family as we would see it kind of in more Western society. When you go down to places like New Zealand and Australia, you know, cats predate on birds. And so it's a very real issue. And they're sort of requiring that cats be indoor pets in order to preserve the wild bird populations down there. And so we do see just a ton of differences. And it's one of the things I think that our field really needs to do. It needs to do that big global study where we ask similar questions about pet ownership, but we ask those questions across a wide variety of countries. And, and I think that that is the next big study that needs to be done. Nancy, one of the things that we have uncovered sort of in, in talking about pets is consumer spending on pets uh, has risen very quickly and sort of dramatically just in the last five years, uh, something on the order of $30 billion, I think, in the United States. How does that, uh, first of all, is that accurate in, in your view? And then how does that translate and, and sort of affect the the average pet? Are, are they getting a benefit from, say, the the gourmet dog foods and, and the like, or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I was involved in a research study with a UK researcher, Rebecca Fox, and we looked at changing conceptions of care. And one of the things that we found was, yes, there's a lot more spending on animals now. Some of it's really good for the animals and some of it is questionable. So for instance, uh, improvements in veterinary care, 
you know, we've had advances in veterinary care, medications to treat various diseases and so on. That's really good for the animals. Improvements in nutrition. You know, now we have some really sophisticated animal diets that include things like treating, you know, kidney disease in cats. And so that veterinary care, nutrition, all of that Increased spending, I think, has had a really positive impact on animals. You mentioned GPS trackers. Well, that's something we didn't used to have, right? And now we have activity monitors for animals. They can wear a whistle tracker, and some of them have GPS, and you can learn all kinds of things. Is your dog scratching more? Maybe the dog has an ear infection, right? So there's some really good things that have come out of all of this increased spending. But there's also some other things that are a little are a little more peripheral. There are all kinds of costumes and clothing that animals can wear. By and large, animals don't really need to wear clothing. There are circumstances under which it makes sense. I used to live up in New York State, and I'll tell you what, I would put booties on my dogs because walking on the salted pavements would burn their paws. And sometimes, you know, it's really cold out. And if you're cold and your dog's an indoor dog, the dog's probably cold too. So putting a coat on uh, on the dog makes some sense. But there's jewelry for dogs that you, some people are getting their dogs tattooed. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of boutique spending now on dogs and cats. So is that good for them? Well, in some cases, I think it does stress them. But in other cases, I think that it might serve as a way for people to bond more with their dogs if and their cats, if they're really genuinely paying attention to the stress signs and not just saying, oh, no, he likes it. No, no, no. Really look at the dog and see if the dog genuinely wants to wear that sombrero, you know, before you put it on the dog. Nancy, one thing we always like to ask our guests is what is their source or what was their source of inspiration for for going into a particular field and particularly those inventors who, who think of it, an invention, you're always curious as to how did they start. So, you know, tell us what we what were you like as a kid? Did you always have an interest in, in dogs and in animals or and and if so, where did that come from? Parents, teachers, siblings, or or just you know, being around them? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. I've never actually lived a day in my life where I've not owned a dog. And so I've had, I mean, since the day I was born, I came to a family, there were, we had dogs. And so that definitely influenced my life. You know, I went into cognitive and neural sciences. That's, that was what my PhD is in. And so I was keeping my academic life really separate from my love of dogs. And I was doing dog sports and doing dog training and, and really kind of doing things with dogs, but keeping it separate. And then one day somebody said to me at an agility trial, you know, your dogs are, they really love to interact with people. I bet your dogs can make good therapy dogs. And we're doing a test this weekend. You ought to come see if you can pass. So I thought, okay, what the heck? I took them to the test. Both dogs passed. The reason they passed is because they're really good at responding to commands and things at a distance. And, you know, they were highly trained for a specific skill. They passed the test. And now I have these registered therapy dogs and I've got to go do something with them. And so I started trying out different places to visit. I, I visited, you know, children with behavioral problems. I visited older adults. I went to all these places. And then there was a preschool in my building where I was a professor. And that preschool had a mix of typical and language-impaired preschool kids, and I started visiting there. And before you know it, the teachers had us integrated into their curriculum. Parents were raving about it. The only complaint we ever got was that we visited on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and some kids were only there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so their kid didn't get the therapy dogs. You know, and so here's the scientist in me, and I said, but wait, is this real? Is this just feel good? People come away with smiles. I mean, 
I can tell you some very impactful stories. I was there. I saw it happen. You know, it gives you chills just thinking about it. But at the same time, I needed to know if there was anything real to it. And that's what got me started doing this research all those years ago. And it's real. There are definite effects based on visiting with these dogs. A couple of questions I actually meant to ask earlier. So why don't I go ahead and ask them now. What are the trends in dog ownership? I mean, uh, we've seen consumer spending go up, but is that because there are more dog owners or is it because people are, are just spending more on their individual pets? You know what? I, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I, we are seeing increases in dog ownership, um, and particularly during the pandemic. We saw a, you know, a, a boost in pet ownership during the pandemic. So we're seeing that, that that's part of it. But I think we're sort of raising the bar with regard to pet ownership. There are greater expectations on people. So people are now really expected to put their dog on a leash when they walk their dog. And if you don't, there's a little bit of shaming. You know, there's a leash law. You know, so the standards have changed. And so the standards have been slowly going up, which I think is wonderful that standards of care have been going up. But as a result, we're seeing these increases in spending related to our love of animals, right? I just took my dogs to PetSmart the other day and I bought them no toys just because I felt like they deserve new toys, you know, and we like doing that. We, we're in a capitalist society. One way we show our love is we buy things for people, right? We buy them gifts. We do the same thing for our pets. We buy them things. And I got a lot of joy out of coming home and seeing my dogs play with their new toys. Now my inner nerd is going to come out. I've always been interested in demography. And are, are there are there demographic variables that will sort of either predict or correlated with dog ownership? Like, for instance, are, are people in rural areas more likely to own dogs versus urban? Are people who are single more likely to own dogs, people with kids? Etc. Are, are there any of those sort of life events or demographic identifiers, are they in any way tied or correlated with dog ownership? Well, one of the things that we're seeing, you point out, and rightly so, that uh, there is more spending on animals. And as a result, animals are more expensive. And so animals are starting to move into the luxury category. You really need to, to know that in the next 15 years, because life expectancy for cat or dog is around 15 years. In the next 15 years, I'm going to be able to provide a home for this animal. I'm going to be able to provide veterinary care, good nutrition, toys, you know, whatever housing needs they have, leashes and so on. And so there is this element of knowing that you can be financially and also lifestyle uh, matched to a pet. So individuals who work 60 hours a week, having a dog can be really challenging. Dogs are social animals. They want their people to be there with them. Having a cat might be a little bit better choice for that person because they're, when they come home, they can interact with their cat at home. Cats tend to be a little bit more night oriented anyway. You know, so, and, and fish, fish are another great pet to have. And that's, a, that's also relatively expensive because you need to purchase the aquarium and all the products that go into the aquarium. So, so yeah, we are seeing that the increase in spending is also associated with making it a little bit more expensive and kind of a leisure activity in the sense that you need to have the time. Nancy, this has been a fascinating conversation. You know, even though I, I, I don't own a dog, I, I sort of think it's 
incredible that, uh, you know, that sort of relationship, uh, particularly with dealing with things like depression or, you know, for older people, it's really made me think about sort of the, the use that they can play, particularly in older people's lives. It sounds quite significant. Thanks very much for talking to me today and, uh, and wish you all the best. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. The Inventivity Pod is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles and me, James DiVirgilio, are your podcast hosts. Podcasts are recorded at the Heartwood Soundstage in Gainesville and edited and mixed by Rob Rothschild. Be sure to subscribe to the Inventivity Pod wherever you get your podcast and leave a comment or review to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, be inventive.